Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, very fortunate to bring you my first interview with Matt Lackey. As many of y'all know, Matt's a serial entrepreneur who started here in Charlotte, born and raised here in Charlotte. Um, has started multiple businesses, um, sold multiple businesses, and remains very active in the startup community today, giving back in different ways and also, as of the last 18 months, linking up with Venture South, um, a VC firm based out of Greenville, South Carolina, that continues to expand and grow. So, really neat podcast. I enjoyed having Mac on. I was excited about the interview. Uh, We covered a broad range of areas today. Um, really kind of touching base on, on Mac's background and, and what he's learned along the way, how he talks to and um, helps entrepreneurs, you know, what are some of the key things that he discusses with them as he sits down with them, um, how he kind of sees Charlotte today after after selling a business, uh, Mountain Khakis, back in 2012, moved overseas for a little while and, and then came back to what is now a growing entrepreneur scene, startup ecosystem here in Charlotte and just wanted his perspective on what that's become over the course of the last couple of years and how he sees it as somebody that started multiple businesses here in the Charlotte area. So really cool podcast. I'm really excited to bring it to you. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Um, also wanted to touch base on a couple of different things that are out there in the community. Um, today, Dan Roselli and his team is celebrating the Southeast FinTech Venture Conference and the QC FinTech Accelerator Program Class Number 9 Demo Day. Um, I am getting ready to head over there now. Excited to see what it um, what it's all about. I, I know it's going to be great. And I know they poured their heart, blood, and, and tears into it over the course of the last couple months. And the classes get to, to enter the class, the um the um, companies within the class get a chance to introduce themselves. So it's going to be a, a really good day. I'm sure the Charlotte Business Journal is going to do a nice cover on it tomorrow or later on this week. So excited to see what they have to say about it. Um, another thing that's out there on the horizon is the effort that Sam Smith with Vision and Collective Hustle is putting together. And I'd like for y'all all to put it on your calendar and consider coming out on January 9th, which is going to be a Wednesday. It's going to start in the morning. It's, um, it's going to wrap up by around 4.30 in the afternoon. It's an initiative called Seed the South. Um, and I think Sam's got a good vision for it. It's combining entrepreneurs and investors in a single room. Um, the morning session is going to be a little bit more geared towards just investors and the entrepreneurs will kind of come in the afternoon and have a chance to mix with them and educate people on what it takes to be an early stage investor, which is something, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. And then also um, bringing in the companies and allowing them to have a little bit of a mini pitch comp- um, competition here within Charlotte. So we'll have 20 or so companies there. Um, though each pitch will have a panel of judges and have um, have a winner come out of it all. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity for Charlotte. It's kind of Charlotte startup demo day, if you will, which I think we've got enough startup companies here in Charlotte now. We probably have 30 or 40 and only 20 or 25 of them are going to be able to make it to the event. I think we have enough now to, to start to promote ourselves from a what's-in-Charlotte-only type startup scene. So put that on your calendar for January 9th. Um, I think it's going to be you know a, a really good day and, and certainly hope that you're going to be able to be out there to, to see it. I'll have directions or I'll have a um, website and other information in my newsletter so you can feel free to, to grab it off there. But that's the big thing on the horizon right now. We're heading into the holiday season, so I know things will slow down for many of you. Safe travels next week on Thanksgiving, and certainly hope you enjoyed this episode with Mac Lackey on the Charlotte Angel Connection. Mac, welcome to the show today. Glad to, uh, glad you're able to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So uh, thanks for hosting me at your place. Um, we've talked about this for a while now, and you and I kind of sat down and um, shot the breeze a little bit this morning. 
Um, I wanted to start kind of right at the heart of who you are, right? You're a serial entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, you've started five businesses. How did it all start? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my very first experience in sort of the working world, I joined a very small startup uh, after I played soccer. Um, and I joined in the marketing department, but like a lot of, you know, sort of youthful exuberance, uh, I probably thought I had a little bit more value to add to this organization than, than, uh, than they thought. And so on the very first day, I'll never forget it, the president of this very small company came in and said, okay, team, let's get together in the conference room. We're going to talk about kind of strategy. And, you know, I'm all excited. I'm grabbing my notebook and my pencils and pens and whatever. And uh, as I'm standing up, he kind of holds his hand up and says, Mac, you can sit down and kind of grab the phone while we're meeting. And it was just such a, you know, punch in the face. And he didn't mean anything by it. He was a great guy, but it just literally hit me as like, wow, these people don't value what I have to offer. Yeah. And uh, so literally my very first day and my kind of very first job effectively I knew that I was going to struggle to work for other people. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I met an engineer that worked at that company. Um, I did work there for probably almost six months before okay. I left uh, with this engineer to start my first company. So um, a lot of it for me was this burning desire to kind of prove that I could do something. I felt, you know, super energetic. Um, I didn't even have an idea that I was necessarily so passionate about. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of how I got you know started yeah. uh, effectively. So what was the first business? So uh, the company I was working for at that point did custom software for edu the educational market. So okay. we were doing lots of things to help kids that were struggling to read or struggling with certain subjects. We were using multimedia to help these uh, kids. And I believed that that same software would be really powerful for businesses. You know, it's, a, it's just a better way to communicate with video and imagery versus just kind of text. And this is 1994, so okay. we're relatively early. Yeah. Um, and so we decided to spin out a company or start a company that was called InTouch Interactive, which basically was going to do custom software for businesses using this kind of multimedia concept. And... You know, the real opportunity that, that happened is, if you think about the timing, our very first hire was a, a young college um, engineer who called himself a webmaster. And so we got into internet development in the first quarter of 1995, about the time Netscape launched its commercial web browser. Yeah. So we were literally one of the first kind of internet development companies. Okay. So um, we, we happened to catch that wave early. We saw it, you know, coming to some degree. We were excited about it. And so that became kind of the heart of that business that we built, which was, you know, called it custom software, but it was 90% developing internet sites for, you know, businesses. And, and being in Charlotte at the time and, you know, in our early 20s, we had expertise that companies didn't have. So, you know, First Union, Duke Energy, Bowles Hollowell, all these companies that, you know, were literally bringing us into the boardroom saying, how do we get on the internet? And so I was telling a lot of uh, people smarter and older than me how to do it. So yeah. that's how we got started. How'd that go? How long, did you, how long did you run that company? So that company, we started in 95. Um, it was started with a $10,000 loan. It was truly a garage startup, you know, my business partner and I were both working kind of out of our own apartments um, and we would meet at the coffee shops. We didn't have an office early on. We didn't have any resources. So it was really a kind of a grinded out business, but because one, the timing and we, you know, developed a profitable business, it was, it was profitable um, pretty early on and we were able to hire additional people uh, but we built the company for about three years, and then all of a sudden the internet kind of boom happened. So in 1998, um, our little company was kind of on the radar, and we got three offers to buy our company kind of back-to-back -back really quickly. Um, and we ended up selling the company to a group that did a roll-up of 34 companies like ours and then subsequently took them public. So we sold the company in, in 98. Um, and I mean, two things happened. 
One is it was a liquidity event that I never expected. We didn't build the business to sell it. That was never our fault. But you know, here I am in my twenties. We it was a you know an eight figure exit, and yep. we thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, you can work hard for sure, but you know, it can create a lot of value. And so that became kind of the. Not only do I want to be an entrepreneur, I love this idea of scaling and exiting because it, it creates real world opportunities. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the light bulb moment for me that it was not necessarily about being, in my case, it was not about being an entrepreneur as much as it was about being a scale entrepreneur. I want to build things that kind of reach scale and, and matter. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, what's uh, 1998, an exit in Charlotte. Yeah. Did it even get picked up in the newspaper? Not really. I mean, you know, there yes, there was a little bit of coverage, but the the sort of the funny thing, and I think people that are of a different generation now can't even imagine this, but yeah, in 1998, uh, being a technology entrepreneur was not a cool thing to be. I no. mean, you know, my kids were, um, well, my kids, I guess, hadn't been born yet, but it's, it's even even years later, I would go to parent events and people would ask you what you would do and I would say you know I'm an entrepreneur I'm a tech entrepreneur and people would literally say oh like they felt sorry for yeah. me you know like oh you don't, work, you don't work at the bank yeah. you're not an attorney um, so yeah it was it was an interesting time that you know I had built and sold two companies um, pretty quickly and it didn't really catch anyone's attention you know which which whether it should have or not doesn't matter, but yeah, at the time the stories that were being covered were different. You yeah. know, not not you know, tech companies, but um, so yeah, we didn't we didn't hit the radar too hard back then. How did you celebrate the first one? Um, personally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went and got the car I wanted. No, you I uh, you know I had a I think like a lot of people, I, I starting out, I had this sort of aspirational list. You know, I mean, I. I I came from uh, an awesome family. I have very supportive, you know, awesome parents, but they were, you know, we didn't, I was not raised with a lot of wealth or anything. And so I didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, early things, um, even though, again, my parents provided a ton for me. Uh, but, you know, so I went out and bought, you know, everything on my wish list, basically. Yeah. And and, uh, and at that point in my life, I thought that was what success kind of meant was yeah. like, go get the car you want, get the watch you want, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I did some of that stuff, but the other thing is, um, we had this sense even back then that this, this kind of internet tidal wave was, was happening and we didn't know that it was going to collapse. You know, uh, we didn't know March of 2000 was coming, but we had this sense of the timing is really important. Like we need to move quick. And so, you know, I resigned from that company the day it went public, started my next business, you know, sold that business 14 months later. I mean, we were moving in, in really fast, you know, kind of uh, pace at that point in life. So that brings us to 2000. Is that when you sold your second business? Yeah. So in 2000, uh, so I'd started another company in um, 99, which was kind of a combination of my love for technology and my real passion around soccer, which was most of my background and most of my life up until I started working. And we created a business called internetsoccer.com, which, you know, sign of the times, is, it's a terrible name now, but yeah. at the time it was, it was great. Uh, but we built a business, which you would now call it a content sort of um, portal, effectively. Yeah. We, we created the largest repository of soccer content in the world outside of television yeah. very quickly. So we were getting, you know, 8 million unique visitors a month at a time when nobody had that kind of traffic because soccer was so big globally. Yeah. Got to March of 2000, had a term sheet from Chase in New York for a $15 million investment. NASDAQ crashes. Um, you know, we go from high flying to I have one payroll left in the bank. And uh, so we decided to, you know, sell the business. Yep. And um, it's, it's, it's a long story. I can tell you later. But it was, it was an awesome kind of experience going from, like, we're about to go out of business and hit the wall to... We created a bidding war on our company from a couple of public companies in Europe who had not quite felt the technology crash yet. Yeah. They were sitting on cash. So we sold the company for $15 million in July of 2000 um, to a public company out of Europe. And so knowing that, you know, 
almost like a poker match, you know, kind of what I'm looking at in terms of cards are worthless, but yeah. you know, we created a fair amount of value. So timing was important, but how did you know to do that? Right. I mean, that's, I mean, you're sitting on, um, a two, a 10, a Jack an eight and a <laughs> six and they're yeah. all different colors, right? You got nothing. Yeah. Um, at least, after the crash, right? Before right. the crash, you had a lot. Before yeah, the crash, did. you had four kings. Yeah. Um, after the crash, so how did you know to go to Europe and say, hey, guys, Yeah. look at me? Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the two things, I guess, that were going on, we had a lot of uh, the competition for us because we were so specific to soccer. As you can imagine, the non-U.S. sort of players and media were the biggest. And so Sky out of Europe mm -hmm. – um, was, was giant. There was a company out of South Africa that was a son of a billionaire that kind of had unlimited capital. And so there were a couple of these big European media companies that were really growing quickly that we were competing with. And our thesis was that they don't understand the internet. They don't understand technology. They just happen to have cash and media assets. So that was kind of our thesis is we'll become their tech, you know, gurus effectively and we can help them enter the U.S. market because yep. they were not big in the U.S. So that was kind of the thesis. Um, the, the 30 seconds, which again, is one of my favorite stories of my entrepreneurial life, but I boarded a plane to, to London with my attorney with no meetings booked, knowing that if I got back on a plane to the U.S. without a deal, we were going under. I mean, it was literally like a one and done kind of thing. And what we did is when we landed in, in London, I picked up the phone and called one of our competitors and said, I'm here to meet with the other competitor. Just thought I would reach out while we're in town to see if you wanted to meet. Booked a meeting with the CEO, then called the other one and said, I'm meeting with the CEO of this company. <laughs> so um, we, we kind of created this very quick you know, frenzy around, I'm going to sell the company to someone. It's yeah. either going to be you or your competitor type of thing. And literally got a you know term sheet while I was there uh, to sell the company and uh, you know use use played them off one another um, legitimately because they both wanted the company yeah so it drove the valuation up and got a deal done so. yeah I mean there's value to them yeah, yeah. absolutely and there was I mean in all fairness I mean because like you're 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 correct I mean we there were a lot of assets effectively we had a lot of very valuable content that we were the only place you could get it. We were selling content to CNN and Yahoo back in those days. Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of proprietary content that we had assume, you know, uh, accumulated that had value to people. Um, and I had a great team. I mean, my team was awesome, you know, so people wanted my team. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing that was really fortunate for us is being able to do some of that at a time when most everyone else was going under. Yeah. So that was the, you know, if we were lucky, that was the lucky part for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, sometimes it's good to be lucky. I'll take it. Yeah. Always. So, um, did you have a board around you that helped you kind of orchestrate that? How did you, um, how did you structure some of those early, I mean, because today it's standard, right? You've yeah. got advisors, you've got board members, you've got friends, you've got peers. Um, but that's because there's an entrepreneur system that's built up and you've got the internet that you can Google stuff. Um, how did you navigate, I mean, as a young 20, I guess mid to late 20s at this yeah. stage, but still fairly young. I was, yeah. How did you navigate some of those business decisions? Well, um, you're right. The We did not have the kind of ecosystem or infrastructure that, that entrepreneurs have now by any means. Um, we did have a board for my second company, but it was more of a hand-picked board that would help us strategically with um, things in the soccer world mm -hmm. and some investors. Uh, because we raised, you know, angel capital for that company. Um, so we had some very smart people around the table. Uh, I had a really, you know, good team again, but they were all, you know, plus or minus my age. So we were all kind of in our 20s. Um, I had an attorney that we were working with at the time that helped a lot with the kind of structural stuff. But, I, you know, and again, I, I was definitely not, you know, there was nothing smart about it. It was, it was really more of, you know, we knew what our, our mission was. We knew where we fit in the world uh, of technology and soccer. And so we were just kind of using our, what I would call sort of vision and strategy at the time to say, where does this puzzle piece fit and negotiate from there? Yeah. Um, but we learned a lot uh, just kind of doing it. You know, I made so many mistakes. I still tell entrepreneurs now, 
you you will gain so much more from me by telling you what not to do mm-hmm. because I took a lot of, you know, as, as one of my partner's fathers used to say, is you had a lot of at-bats. You know, we would get up and swing hard and whiff yeah. and we would strike out. But, you know, we'd get up the next day and do it again. Yep. And so I learned a lot about how to negotiate deals because I, you know, had some that blew up and I did it wrong. And then I learned, you know, to sell for cash, not for stock. And yep. then, you know, all these kind of things that, you know, you learn the hard way, but, uh, but we did have, we had an awesome team that made it easy to discuss the stuff. Yeah. Let's, I want to come back because you talked about, you had some angel investors there. So I want to come back to that second business, but let's take a quick Mac lackey detour. Okay. Um, what were you like in high school? Um, in college for that matter, right? Were you an economics major? Were you an uh, English major? What you know, yeah. kind of talk a little bit about early days of Mac. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, hindsight's, you know, super valuable when you're looking backwards. Things seem yeah. like you could maybe pull out uh, little bits and bites of, of a background and say, oh yeah, it's obvious. But, you know, I, my life um, literally up until starting that first business was soccer and fun. I mean, I, I, you know, my dreams as a, as a youth, you know, growing up, I just wanted to play professional soccer. I wanted to play in college. Those were, those were my only real motivations other than having fun. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it dominated my life. I, and I was very, I guess, you know, fortunate or blessed in that, you know, I did kind of check off. I went to play, you know, at Wake Forest, which was one of the top schools in the country uh, on a soccer scholarship. Um, you know, I was a collegiate All-American. I played professionally. I did, I did the things that I, you know, wanted to do from a soccer standpoint. So if you looked at the resume effectively, you said, okay, well, this is an accomplished person. But, you know, I got kicked out of Wake Forest. I had terrible grades in high school. I was not, you know, most of the people around me would have not put me on the most likely to succeed list. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, a, I was having way too much fun. Um, and I didn't really have any focus because my energy all went into soccer. And so um, now I can look back and say, you know, I was all, all sort of true stuff is I was very dedicated and focused. It just happened to be pointed at soccer and nothing else in my life. You know, I had truly, uh, you know, people always talk about attention deficit disorder as like kind of joking around, like I'm distracted, like I was diagnosed and all in medicine for attention deficit disorder. Uh, I was really fortunate that I had understanding parents that put up with my crazy behavior um, and that I was, you know, maybe smart enough to not fail out of schools because of, you know, being distracted. So I, I, I sort of look back and say, gosh, you know, that was really important because the, the best thing that ever happened to me was getting kicked out of college because it was the first time that someone kind of ripped the rug out from under me. And I realized that, wow, if I don't, if I don't get my act together, you know, I could, I could dig a ditch. Not, not that there's anything wrong with being a ditch digger, but yeah. that was not my dream as, yeah. a, as a, you know, high school or college, you know, individual. So anyway, long story short, you know, looking back, uh, I kind of credit that moment as kind of a life shift for me. You know, I went back to play soccer at another school, graduated, you know, straight A's, got my life together, kind of turned it around effectively. Um, you know, was dating my wife, or dating my now wife. Um, so, you know, got into a serious relationship and then kind of put all that energy and drive into business, yeah. which was my, you know, kind of replaced soccer as kind of my obsession and passion. But you'd come home from school and you'd play soccer for six hours and you'd try different things and you'd um, do this and then it didn't work, so you'd do it another way. So yeah. your, your practice on soccer kind of funneled straight into your startup businesses where you tinker and try and if it didn't work, you do it a different way. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's, I've used, um, the sports analogies and soccer in particular as so many metaphors and analogies for, for business. And the reality is if you look back at my, the, the sort of the way I played, the way I practiced, it is a perfect kind of proving ground for being an entrepreneur. I was a huge risk taker. I mean, I was the, and I've, I've blogged about this kind of stuff, but I used to always think, you know, I'm not a basketball player, but Michael Jordan, you could tell he wanted the ball at the buzzer to take the shot, right? And he would take the glory of of the three-pointer or the absolute, like, you know, every fan being angry that he missed it. And that was me. Like, I wanted to take the shot, 
take the penalty. I'll be in the spotlight or be the one everybody hates for, you know, tripping and falling as you're going to goal. So, you know, there were lots of things that I think soccer, you know, the, the team aspects of soccer, huge impact on me as an entrepreneur. I am, I am more of a, uh, I like to be a leader, but I'm not, I was never like, I'll be the team captain. You know, I always wanted a business partner and people that were really organized and really, thoughtful about that. I wanted to be the guy out trying to score goals and trying to, you know, win games for our teams. So I think there are a lot of things that, that you know, soccer kind of helped me build a foundation for, you know, drive and, and, you know, it takes a lot to get to a certain level in any sport or any discipline. So if you, if you, if I interview people now and they say, Hey, I was in the, I was in the military, you know, that says to me, they're, they're very disciplined. They've yeah. got something that I don't have. If they played a sport at a collegiate level or professional level, I don't care what their grades are like. They are a committed person. Yep. You can't get to a certain level without that. So I do think there are at least bits and pieces of my background that I think maybe laid a foundation for, for what I'm doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, so we'll circle back around. So second company, you said you had angel investors. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we'll go back and we'll pick on Charlotte for a little while. Sure. This is 1999, 2000. You're raising angel money. I mean, did people even know what angel money in Charlotte was back then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was definitely um, very early. We most of our what I would call angel investors. I don't even know if I knew to call it angel back then. It was kind of friends and family, and truly, it was. You know, my family didn't have a lot of money, but right. they believed in me. My business partner's family didn't have a lot of money, but they believed in him. Yeah. So we had what I now still believe is the best form of backers, which is people that know you and trust you. Yeah. Um, and then there were a fair number of people that, that did have some wealth that had seen what we kind of accomplished with our first company and the kind of liquidity event it created. And um, so, you know, it, it helped to be able to use that example to say, here's what we did with our last company. And I also think the internet, when we were raising the internet boom was exploding and people wanted to be a part of it. Very similar to other things that we're all familiar with now with cryptocurrencies or whatever. When the wave is, is you know, going, people want to be a part of it. So we had some of that, um, but a lot of it was truly just friends and family, people that, that believed in us and wanted to support us. Uh, equity, straight equity investment statement? Were you, were you doing, I mean, convertible notes back then? How we was did, they structured? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It was it was equity. Um, it wasn't very sophisticated. We had a you know unusually high valuation because we didn't really understand you know pre money post money valuations. We just sort of arbitrarily said we think our company's going to be worth a lot. Um, so we we had some investors from an equity standpoint, and then once we got to the uh, the deal, we got a term sheet from this public company in Europe. We did raise what is effectively, I called it a bridge back then, but kind of a convertible note that you know if the deal got done, they were going to get paid out with kind of a guaranteed return. If it didn't, it was going to convert. Um, but you know, so we had a little bit of a you know equity structure and a, and what is now a convertible note structure. But again, back in those days, I don't think I had the sophistication to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's funny. So you go. Um... See, exit business number two, July 2000, um, and where do you head from there? Do you take any time off in between these things, Matt, or is it literally dated, you know, um, from one day to the next? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny. Um, so the reason I'm kind of laughing or smiling is, is when I sold that second company, the deal closed in Atlanta. That's where the attorneys were for this, you know, this European company flew over to Atlanta. We had the closing. And it was in a tower across the street from a big mall in Atlanta. And I literally left closing. I wasn't uh, I wasn't drinking at the time. So I had a, I think I had an O'Doul's, uh, okay. you know, and, and so we didn't celebrate over some big, you know, uh, wine or, or champagne, but we uh, we had a quick toast over an O'Doul's, I think it was. And uh, then I walked into this mall and bought a pair of running shoes, which was mentally my commitment to like, I'm gonna get in shape because I was, living the startup. I mean, yeah. I was sleeping on the floor, traveling crazy. Were you married at that time? I was married at that point. Okay. Um, so loving, forgiving wife. Very, very forgiving wife. But the other thing that, you know, we talked about kind of that, these inflection points in your life, you know, the, the very first meeting I had with this president of the company that was an inflection point, getting kicked out of school was definitely an inflection point. And inflection point three was 
sold the company in July of 2000. My first daughter was born in August of 2000. And I look back at my life at that point, and I talk about this a lot now, and I could say, you know, I, I wasn't 30 years old yet, and I had sold two companies, and I had done very well by a lot of standards, but I realized that the way I had worked, you know, the hours I was putting in, and I had this kind of odd badge of, like, I'm working 100-hour weeks, and I, I was almost proud of it. Yeah. And, um, and then I was thinking about this new daughter that I was about to have and the kind of dad I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be the, you know, take him to school every day, have dinner with him, carve the pumpkins, you know, do everything. And uh, I realized that, you know, the way I was working would not allow that. And so I went through kind of a, a couple of probably weeks of real struggle to think, you know, what's going to give here? What's the trade-off? You know, am I going to be a great dad or am I going to be a scale entrepreneur? Because yeah. clearly nobody can do both. And at that point, I effectively made a decision that has shaped the rest of my life, which is I got mad and said, no, I, I am going to do both. And I'm, I'm going to figure out how to be home every day for my daughter, do everything I want to do, go to the recitals at two in the afternoon, but still build and scale companies. And so that kind of was my commitment to myself and my family. And, you know, it took some time to figure out how to change the way I worked effectively um, and the other thing, sometimes people say, well, you know, he made a ton of money. You know, I had, I had been very successful by a lot of financial measures. I also watched about 90% of my net worth disappear in the crash of <laughs> 2000. And, uh, so it's not like I was independently wealthy at that point. I had made lots of money, but I had also lost lots of money. Um, so it really became a, a shift in terms of how I worked. I didn't take any time off those running shoes sat in the closet uh rotted i think in the closet i was gonna say are they still in there yeah they're probably yeah. in there somewhere some retro probably probably cool again but yeah. they're still in the box retro shoes um but yeah we we literally uh, you know just kind of kept going running starting my next companies um and then at that point i was i was going from uh i used to have a blog called being serial in parallel because someone introduced me to the idea that you know, Mac, you're not a serial entrepreneur, you're a parallel entrepreneur, you're doing several at, at a time. And so almost all the way back in my background, I had one big company I was focused on, but while I was running internet soccer, I co-founded a company called Etain, which became one of my next companies. So in March of 2000, we started Etain Group. Um, so I, I began kind of pursuing, you know, doing several at a time uh, in, in the 2000s. Um, so I moved to Charlotte in 2011, um, and the Matt Lackey that I know started, founded Mountain Khakis. Mm -hmm. When does that come into play in the whole story? Mountain Khakis was, uh, I believe we founded it in 2003. Okay. And Mountain Khakis was a, um, it was kind of a deviation for me from my kind of standard approach in a couple of key ways. You know, number one it was not my idea. You know, someone had a, had an idea. There was no actual product. There were no, there was no such thing as mountain khakis as a pant. Uh, but someone had written a business plan and was struggling to get it going. It was about to give up when I was kind of given this plan. So it was different in that it wasn't my idea on a, you know, Bev nap that I had kind of conceived of. It was also different in that it was a kind of consumer apparel idea versus technology enabled stuff. So um, it, was, it was an interesting deviation, but in a, at a time that I had just resigned from the board of a tech company I was running. Is that the, the Tain, Tain yeah. Okay, yeah. Which, you know, uh, was a great business, but sort of, again, just timing is everything. And, and I had some partners. I was the CEO. I was the largest kind of partner from an ownership perspective. And I had some awesome partners, but we had a slightly different point of view on the trajectory, you know, I, we were in kind of a tech downturn. I was very interested in buying up distressed tech companies and per my nature, you know, I would have bet the farm yep. to make it work. Um, I would have, you know, taken it to zero to try it. And my partners, you know, in hindsight, probably maybe, uh, you know, made the right decision, but their view was we have a great business. It's profitable. We're making good money. Why would we risk it? And, they were thinking about it longer term than, than I was. And so, you know, we, um, we, we stayed friends and we just said, okay, I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start the next thing. You guys keep running this. Uh, so 
So yeah, I think Mountain Khakis came along at a time that I was almost uh, looking for something outside of technology, and so the stars aligned. Um, you know, we got behind this company, bought out the the gentleman that had the original idea because he was uh, he was really talented creatively, but you know he wasn't necessarily the guy to build the company up. So a couple of us, um, you know, kind of got behind this idea and, and built it up and. It's, it's been a great you know company. I mean, we sold it to Remington in 2010. So sold it the first time, 75% of the company to Remington, the big gun company. Um, and then it was sold 100% to another uh, business a couple years later. So we went through a couple of iterations, but building the company up, building the brand, you know, being in that industry was just an awesome experience. You know, something that I still to this day one of the you know one of the highlights of my entrepreneurial kind of career just because it was so fun yeah so speaking of fun highlight of your entrepreneurial career um, five companies and some other side projects and stuff like that that you continue to be involved with today right what was um and i know it's, it's like asking you which one's your favorite kit <laughs> what was your favorite company yeah that is a it is, is a tough one to answer because there are things i liked about you know, everything I've done, I've been passionate about to some degree, you know, I've had some real, uh, and, and a lot of it has been people, you know, I've just, I've been so fortunate to have awesome, you know, partners, employees, board members, investors, and that kind of stuff. And I can look back over all those and think about that and think, gosh, you know, what an awesome company. Interestingly enough, the one, someone asked me this a week or so ago, like if you, if you could get one back, which one would you take back? And the, the honest answer is if I could have, taken internet soccer back and never sold it, I would have kept it. Um, that business would be worth a life's fortune now, simply because we were so early, we had so much traffic, we had so much global prominence for this little Charlotte. I could, we, there was a soccer conference in the south of France. I flew over uh, my first trip to Europe, um, you know, a long time ago, and people knew who we were, you know, and, and at a time when, I mean, they didn't know U.S. companies even in Silicon Valley that much, much less some little company in Charlotte. And I think we could have, you know, we were very early in e-commerce. We were very early in content distribution. We were just early. I owned Olympic broadcast rights over the internet before anyone was even bidding on them. So if I could take that one back and build it out, I think I would have really enjoyed it because it was just kind of a combination of passions for me. Yeah. Um, and, and to some degree, Kick, which is a business I started many years later, was almost... 2.0 of, of that business. So yeah. I had another sort of bite at the apple effectively. Uh, and I did buy back the internetsoccer.com domain. So I, I own it with uh, my longtime business partner now. So we're so not doing anything with it, yeah. but we own it. It's yeah. just as, almost like it's a nostalgia, you know? Yeah. So. Um, what? So it's been 18 years since you sold that. It was struggling. It was the dot-com era. Every dot-com in the world was struggling. Mm -hmm. um, they're just falling by the wayside on a day-to-day -day basis. What could, knowing everything that you know now, what could you have done to go back and save it so that you didn't have to sell it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a couple of, of types of startups um, that I kind of think of. And, you know, my very first business was profitable. We didn't need to sell it. We had optionality. You know, yeah. we could have we could have stayed a small business. We could have grown it organically over time. Uh, we didn't have investors that we had to really answer to. We didn't have a board we had to answer to. So those kind of businesses, if you if you build them with a ton of value, you have every option available. You can sell it if you want. You can monetize it. Whatever. Um, Internet soccer was was really more built and optimized for massive scale. And if it didn't have massive scale, it was going to fall on its own weight. I mean, we went from zero to 50 employees very quickly um, and way outpacing our revenue, which was very small. We were way ahead of these kind of curves. And so if I were to do it over, I'm not actually sure I would have done anything that differently because that was kind of what you had to do to build something at scale back in those days. But... Um, you know, I guess the, the, the reality is if you wanted to slim that company down, keep it profitable or, or try to get it to break even sustainable, it would have just been a longer build. But, you know, I, I think entrepreneurs just have to be honest with themselves and their investors, most importantly, about the intentions of a business. You know, I've, I've had several companies, Kick being another one, that, that, you know, it was not a profitable company. It was never designed to be a profitable company. We designed it 
so that we could capture a market and monetize that market. And if we didn't sell it, it was never going to work. Um, but that was clear to the team and to our investors from a pretty early point. Um, you know, Mountain Khakis, that was not the plan. We wanted to build a, a brand that would last. You know, I wanted my kids not necessarily to run the business, but maybe my grandkids have a pair of Mountain Khakis or see it out there and say, oh, my, you know, my granddad started that. Like, that was a different strategy. So, you know, I, I think about those things pretty intentionally. And I, when I work with entrepreneurs, that's a big part of our dialogue is what's, what's the goal? Yeah. So, so on that note, um, and there's a bunch of them, but the lesson, the biggest kind of takeaway lesson that you've had, um, when an entrepreneur calls you and I know you get a lot of calls, um, what are some of the things that you just kind of sit down and say, you've got to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, as you and I might have discussed, you know, I've kind of made this decision that at this point in my life and career, I'm sort of shifting from, you know, I just had my, my I sold my most recent company and I had to reflect on, you know, what I've done, but also what I want to do with kind of part two of life effectively. And a lot of my motivation is I want to help other entrepreneurs. You yeah. know, I really, I'm, I'm really passionate about it. So rather than start kind of the next new company and I've got 10 ideas, you know, so I, that would be the path of least resistance for me. Um, I've put a lot of energy into how do I create a platform to help other entrepreneurs and kind of turn that into my business, what I do, how I spend my days. Um, it's kind of my mission. So, I mean, the short answer is... You know, I think there are a few critical success factors for startups, depending on the sector. You know, it's different if you're starting a, a laundromat or a local retail store versus a kind of a tech-enabled scale type of business. And I really focus on scale and impact entrepreneurs. And that, to me, definitionally sort of means people that either are or want to be at above eight figures in kind of revenue or value. So they're not solopreneurs that just want to be graphics designers. These are people that want to build $10 million plus kind of companies or impact entrepreneurs, meaning they have a mission, a social cause or something that's driving them to do something really high impact that has equal value to me. So with those kind of entrepreneurs, I think the, the biggest factors are making sure I've got this acronym called value, which is vision, alignment, leverage, unique abilities, and execution. And I work with entrepreneurs to kind of go through that process. So it's hard to summarize in 30 seconds, which is a you know three three month process I take yeah. people through. But a lot of the real value I think in scale comes from what I call leverage. Meaning, you know, when we started Kick, it was soccer technology. We wanted to sell software to the eight thousand youth clubs in this country. For me to effectively do that, I would have had to hire I don't know how many salespeople. 20, 50, who knows, it would have cost me a lot of money. So I found the largest, um, one of the largest groups that works with soccer clubs in the U.S. called U.S. Club Soccer. They already had over 5,000 clubs as customers. And so I did a deal with them to help push my product into the market, kind of top down. So the leverage on that deal created the value of my company. And I did it with one, you know, basically one page contract. Yeah. Then we went out and found the largest e-commerce company in the soccer space, did a deal with them. So kind of overnight, this little uh, company kick was competing with the biggest players in the market because of the leverage we got on those partnerships. So I, I think that's something I always tell entrepreneurs, find the leverage in your business. And it's typically something very proprietary and unique that you either create or you go find in a strategic partnership. So that's, that's a really big one for me. Yeah, that's smart. Um, so talk a little bit about um, that that thing that you're creating, the helping entrepreneur thing, right? Yeah. Um, you've got your website, maclackey.com. Is it on there or is it someplace else? How do people find it? Yeah, yeah thanks for asking. I, I, you know, yes, there is a maclackey.com website. Most of my, probably the last five or six years, that has served as a, infrequent blog for me where I just kind of put stuff up that I, I think about or care about um, and I haven't promoted it heavily by any stretch of the imagination but that site um, and then a new site I'm launching under the name The Phoenix which is F-E-N-X 
uh, is going to be kind of the platform itself, and it's effectively going to be, and I say going to be because it hasn't gone live yet, um, an academy, if you will, where entrepreneurs can join kind of an online membership to get access to me, all my frameworks, everything I've created um, in a very low-cost, high-impact environment with a bunch of other scale and impact entrepreneurs. Also, the people that I tend to work with. So when I start a new company, the graphic designer I use, the engineer I use, all the stuff that's become my repeatable formula, I'm trying to make it available to people, not so they can pay for it, but they can get advice. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm working on and launching. And then I also have um, a partnership, as I think you know, with Venture South, which is a large angel network here in the, the Southeast that kind of addresses how entrepreneurs can raise capital. And I feel, you know, I've created a course about raising capital, which is very much based on all my experiences on raising angel capital. And rather than me being a prolific angel, which I don't think I'm a great personal investor, uh, I think I'm a better entrepreneur than I am an investor. So I partnered with Venture South because I think that is their core competency, a diligence process, uh, full-time professional team. So I you know, became a partner, I invested in Venture South so that I could sort of go to entrepreneurs and say, if you fit the right criteria, here's a source of capital. And it, even if they don't end up investing, you're gonna learn so much about how to raise capital working with me and this team and then I can help them on the scale and impact side. So if they have capital, uh, I can sort of couple that with, here's the five things we need to do to build a $10 million or $100 million company. So that was kind of my vision. Um, that's the way I'm sort of looking at time going forward is you know, overweight time to help entrepreneurs figure out how to scale and create impact, and then work with Venture South to, to create even more infrastructure in the Southeast to match angels with entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, um, how did you come across Venture South? Yeah, so Venture South, um, you know, you, you said something earlier, which is exactly right. I mean, and I don't have a problem with this at all, but the reality is, you know, during the course of this um, podcast or conversation, if I looked at my computer, I would have three different entrepreneurs asking me to have a cup of coffee. Um, it's just kind of a day-to-day -day reality for me that people want to pick my brain, and yeah. I can't do that all day long. Um, so... The same is very true in terms of uh, sources of capital. You know, I get asked a lot, you know, would you invest in my company or how do I raise capital? And I've seen a lot of these venture type groups come and go. I was probably pretty skeptical of them because I personally have raised so much capital for my companies, but I'd never had a lot of success with any structured venture capital groups or networks. So I met uh, one of the founders of Venture South probably five or six years ago, he came over and he was saying all the right things about their mission and vision, how they wanted to do it. And I was very encouraging, but I, I mean, candidly, I think he walked out of the room and I thought, yeah, you know, good luck. You're saying the same thing everybody else is. Yeah. And uh, I moved abroad, I moved to Barcelona, kind of lost touch with them. And then when I moved back, I caught back up with him just kind of to check in. And he was giving me the update and said, you know, we've deployed... $20 million in Southeastern companies over the last couple of years. And he said some shocking things to me. And I was like, wow, these guys are, are the real deal. They pulled yeah. it off. Yeah. So um, I reconnected with them and then uh, it, it became a very clear thing in my mind that, that what I wanted to do and what I think I can do reasonably well is work with founders that, you know, trying to build and sell their companies. And they had a portfolio of 50 companies with young CEOs. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a market I can help. So I, you know, joined them again as a partner. I'm a venture partner. I'm the only one of the partners that is not a full-time Venture South employee yeah. because all they're doing is focusing on putting capital to work and, and matching up angels with that network. So it's a huge network. Was it 16 locations now? Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of evolving. You know, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of physical locations like Charlotte, Greensboro, Greenville, Charleston, but it's also increasingly moving online. So it's okay. becoming more and more virtual, not to eliminate the, the physical meetings, but because it can. And yeah. so now, you know, theoretically you can invest in Southeastern companies and be an active participant and live in New York because you can watch every single pitch, you can read all the diligence materials and everything's online. So 
that's right now it's 250 plus members across yeah like 15 16 chapters yeah but that's increasingly going virtual so is that kind of the goal with it is to expand it out from a virtual perspective and potentially have folks in seattle investing in the network getting access to deal flow in the southeast exactly and and it's important to make that distinction like right at this point my partners and i have never had a conversation about opening up the deal flow to non-southeastern companies but it is opening the angel network and opportunities to angels and capital that is outside the southeast to put money to work in the southeast so that's an important distinction because we we want national reach and opportunities for capital um, but it's for southeastern deal flow that's that's our sort of first and hardest filter is we see a lot of companies that we like because we get you know deals every day uh, but there are companies based in Austin or California and you know the first thing we say is you know per the criteria we, we invest almost exclusively in the southeast yeah so um, so early entrepreneur in Charlotte you started your first business in 95 um, you sold it, you've had five, lots of side projects. Some have gone really well, some have um, probably not gone as well as originally intended. There's, um, you move over to Barcelona, you come back, and within the last five years, there's this community that's kind of started up, the startup community. What's it like for somebody that was doing it before there was any support or network or it's like for you to look around and say, wow, look at all this stuff. Look how lucky these people are. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it, it, it is, um, it's interesting because I, when we moved abroad, uh, I, if you would have asked me the day we left, we sold our house in Charlotte and I had, I would have said 50, 50 odds that I come back to the U S in the next five to 10 years. I okay. mean, I was pretty much ready to live in Europe. Um, and if we move back to the U.S., I would have given you about a 5% chance it was Charlotte. And some of that was that issue, right? The ecosystem is I felt like I had, uh, not that I was ultra successful or anything like that. I just, I felt like I had sort of outrun the opportunity in Charlotte. You know, when I was raising money for my companies around that time, you know, the capital, I was raising millions of dollars, but it was coming from California and New York and other places and I had some great Charlotte investors, but all things, you know, equal, I was raising most of my money getting on the plane. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, for me to do what I want to do and pursue the visions that I have, I'm going to need to be in Austin or I'm going to need to be in California. So if we come back to the U.S., it's going to be somewhere else. And for a series of reasons unrelated to, you know, work, uh, you know, we ended up coming back to the, to the U.S. a little bit. Uh, quicker than I would have thought just again sort of good good nothing bad but good reasons you know to get the family kind of settled I had pulled my girls out of school and traveled the world I had given them this crazy set of experiences and I felt like I kind of owed them a little bit of normalcy traditional <laughs> yeah traditional yeah. Um, and so we moved back so that the girls could kind of have high school in a, in a relatively normal way um, but when we did that you know Charlotte became the obvious choice to do it and I sort of showed back up, and to your point, the ecosystem felt like it was here. You know, it was, you know, there was, there was, it's still evolving, but there were a lot of entrepreneurs, and it was kind of cool to be an entrepreneur, and there were all these meetups and all these events, and so um, it's, I'm excited not only for Charlotte, but probably more importantly for, you know, young or first-time entrepreneurs at any age that they can start and probably achieve some of their goals that would have been really hard otherwise because it was hard. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I feel very blessed and fortunate that some of our stuff worked out because the odds were certainly stacked against us. What's the strength of the system, the ecosystem as you see it right now, right? Um, San Francisco has the strength that um, a bunch of people have started companies and there's a plethora of, uh, of capital out there. What's the strength that Charlotte companies can really draw on? Well, I think there are a couple things that have happened in Charlotte. You know, we have, um, not only do we have an active ecosystem of people that, are, that care and are getting engaged, but we do have some yardsticks to kind of measure against. I mean, all of a sudden, um, the success stories, you know, you have, you know, I spent five, six years on the Lending Tree board. 
you know, Lending Tree is a is a big public company that's based in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was started. Um, you know, Red Ventures, you know, started in Charlotte. I met met Rick and Dan, I think their first or second day in Charlotte at a coffee shop and before they had started any of it and just to watch what they have built is amazing, you know, and, and have it exchange and you know, we, we all know the, the unicorns and the stories. But so as a young entrepreneur, someone can look up and say, I want to be the next, you know, fill in the blank with one of those companies or something different. And that's that's really powerful. Um, the other is I think people recognize that these companies are not fun little side projects. They can hire a lot of people. They can create a lot of economic value. They can put the city on the map. So I think you're seeing the city, you're seeing the large companies start to pay attention to startups, think about innovation coming from Charlotte. Uh, I used to always say there's a reverse uh, kind of not, not invented here mentality. Like Silicon Valley only wanted to invest in Silicon Valley stuff. Charlotte companies only wanted to buy stuff from other places. Like, you know, I was building technology in Charlotte and people would say, oh, you know, you're not from New York. Okay, well, we're going to talk to a New York company. So I think that's changing. You know, I think Charlotte companies, at least it's equal footing now. You know, we'll look for the best provider of technology for Bank of America. They may be in Charlotte. They may be in Austin. They may be in Mumbai. But Charlotte is not disadvantaged. Charlotte is equal. Um, and, you know, I think that's a big shift because uh, my father used to always say, you know, never fly over dollars. You know, like if you have companies you can work with here, why get on a plane? Yeah. But the reality was a lot of my career, like that wasn't an option. I, if I wanted to build a company, I had to get on a plane and go somewhere else to do a lot of what needed to happen. Yeah. Um, what's the area of most improvement, we won't call it the weakness, right, will be politically correct. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the missing link? And, and there's the same thing, right? There's a few missing links in yeah. Charlotte, but um, what's Mac Lackey's prescription for things Charlotte needs to do over the course of the next two to three years? Yeah, I think that's a really fair question because I might have a controversial answer. I don't I don't think it's capital. Um, I think a lot of people default to that, and I the interviews I, over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think capital is really important, but the only reason I say that is, you know, one out of personal experience. Like, if you're committed to figuring it out, like you can raise money. I mean, I've raised a ton of money. Um, not not that it was easy, but capital is available. There is capital. There's capital in Charlotte, increasingly. But the the reason I say that is, I think it unfortunately becomes a crutch for people. You, you know, the number of conversations, it has to exceed 50% of the conversations with entrepreneurs. When I ask them about their timeline, it's, it's literally the second or third bullet point. I've got an idea, I have incorporated, and now I'm going to raise money. And I start saying, okay, well, you know, what are you raising money for? And, well, I need to hire someone. Well, what if you got them to work for free? What if they, you partnered with somebody that already was in the industry? And you start picking away at it, money is not required to do what they want to do. But in their minds, they think that's the process. So I'm really cautious about that. Again, I'm not anti-money in any way. I'm, I'm an investor. I've built businesses because of kind investors. Uh, but I just don't like it being used as a crutch. And I hear that a lot in Charlotte. So I think it is really more about uh, the thing I think Charlotte still is lacking is the support, uh, even though it's better, from the kind of the government and corporate world doesn't feel as engaged as it should be, in my opinion. I don't think we have yet fully embraced what it is like or what it would be like if large, and I won't use any names, but large organizations that are domiciled here or headquartered here started spraying their resources down internally. Uh, and it doesn't have to be capital. You know, I used to think I'm paying a lot of money for uh, rent for a startup, which is really hard for a startup to pay for a nice office. And there are empty buildings uptown floors with Herman Miller chairs that are already paid for that, gosh, you know, give me some free space and I can create a lot of value. Yeah. So I think just changing the mentality of resources that our city and our corporate citizens have and thinking, what if we just offered this stuff to a startup community that could turn around and, and benefit us? And I don't think that mentality is quite there yet. Yeah, that's a good point. So 
more people seem to be talking about that lately, which I think is a really big positive. Agree. It's in the conversation now. Yeah. No. Yeah. So um, in the past, it's always been, we need more entrepreneurs and we need more capital. Yes. Um, and now it's, oh, wait a second. There's these other things that are accessible, that could be accessible. Absolutely. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, you've mentioned it a couple of different times and we're coming up on the end of, um, end of our hour. Um, and I always tell people that their greatest asset, if they have them, their greatest asset is their kids, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so talk a few minutes about your, you know, what your kids think of Mac Lackey, the dad, and then Mac Lackey, the entrepreneur, right? How has life been living with the, I'm sorry, you're an entrepreneur guy, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, I, you know, I, if you, if you look at most of my profiles, if you hear me talk, if you do, you know, if you're engaged with me in any way, shape or form, almost everyone knows, like I'm kind of a family first guy. I, I, I didn't say it to you before this conversation because we're sitting 25 feet from my, you know, my wife. Uh, but I used to always tell people I'll sit here as long as my wife doesn't call or my daughters don't need me. And that's my top priority. And so I have been really fortunate, you know, my, my daughters are, are 15 and 18 now, and I have literally not missed a thing. You know, I have been at every Donuts for Dads and carved every pumpkin I wanted to carve. And so not to say I'm a perfect dad, I've made a million mistakes. Um, it's hard being a parent, it's the hardest job you do, but I, I feel good about that I've been there. I don't think I'm going to regret that. Um, I, I tried to... Uh, fuse my life where again we're sitting you know 25 yards from my house I built my home office with you know five feet between the house and the home office so that I could walk in and out all day and I could be there for my my wife and kids Um, but the way they look at me uh, you know you probably have to ask them but I think they have had the benefits for the most part of me choosing to be an entrepreneur because of the flexibility I've had and the commitment I've made to kind of family first. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been at plenty of situations that I know that the other dads who are whatever they are, attorneys, doctors, bankers, they want to be there. They just can't. They yeah. can't because of their boss or their day job or the structure of their career. And I have designed my life and business around my family. When I take, you know, I, I just took a trip to, I'm on the board of a company in Zurich you know, my wife went with me for the meeting, you know, was it a business trip or, or a vacation? I don't know. Yeah. Both, you know, and, and I've designed a lot of my life that way. So I think they've seen the benefits of that. I don't know that they'll choose an entrepreneurial path uh, necessarily, but I've tried to expose them to, there are different ways to create value in the world. There are different ways to have a career because I, I did candidly have a fear at least early on that the combination of the other people they were around, the influences they saw at school and in the community made it look like what you have to do is go to a certain school and then you go join the analyst program at a certain bank and then you sit in a cubicle and then if you do great, you move up to the next level. Yeah. And if that's what they choose, I'm 100% supportive. But I didn't want them to think that's the conveyor belt. Yeah. And so I've tried to show them a different path. So I think for the most part, it's been a positive. I, I credit being an entrepreneur is one of the greatest decisions I've ever made. You yeah. know, it's, it's given me a great life. Um, and I will, you know, I'm glad we're saying this for posterity's sake, because I will also say to every entrepreneur that listens to Gary Vee and I listen, I listen to Gary Vee, but that, you know, I made the mistake of thinking it was all about putting in the hours and the work early in my career. And that is just not required. I mean, you know, you, you can, I, I feel so confident that I can work with entrepreneurs that can create truly life-changing impact in the world or build scale businesses and still be an awesome husband or be super fit or be great parents or travel the world. It is not a trade-off that you have to make. Yeah. But I think we've been sold a bill of goods that you have to choose, and I don't believe that. Yeah, no, that's cool. So your older daughter is finishing high school this year. She's going to go to college. She'll spend four years there, hopefully not five. Yes. Um, <laughs> She's a lot smarter than I am, so hopefully she'll get that on the uh, She gets out of school. She wants to start a business. What are you going to do? Yeah, I would. I would. Uh, You're all in? Or you I, gonna, I would fully support that. Yeah, you, you, know? co- you co-founded it with her, or are you just going to be supportive dad? She probably wouldn't want me to co-found it with her. She's going <laughs> to choose her own path, I'm, I'm certain. Uh, my oldest daughter is. I, I love the fact that she is uh, confident and strong-willed enough to, like, she 
we kind of joke around that she walks the beat of her own drum, but I mean, she lives it, you know, yeah. she, she really does. And uh, so I would be shocked if she would want me to <laughs> be a co-founder, but I would be very supportive, just like I would be supportive if she decided to sit in the lab and do research or whatever, yeah. you know, so. So, well, that's cool. Well, no, you've, um, you've led a good life. You've helped out the community within Charlotte. Um, and you're continuing to build out something that I think is going to be really cool to watch over the course of the next 10 or 15 years. So um, hopefully in a year or two, we can sit back down and continue to shoot the breeze and figure out what else you're up to with um, Phoenix and other opportunities and um, laugh about the cool stuff that's happened. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm really excited about the future for for Charlotte. And, and yeah, I'm excited about what I'm doing because it is is largely kind of mission-driven at this point. I think I can help a lot of people, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, but it'll be really fun to sit back and talk about at least the mistakes I've made because I know I'll make a bunch. Yeah, no, well, and then you'll learn and you'll go forward. That's right. So, well, thanks, Mac. I appreciate it. Thank you. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.